Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we will be making ecumenism sexy again. I know, I know. It's very shocking to imply that ecumenism is not currently sexy, but used to be, and we have to get back to that golden state. However, that's the way it is. It is a a disdained little sister within the world these days, so we're going to give it our best shot to uh, dress her up for the ball. Yeah, I'm game. Let's uh, let's see if we can redress this um, tired visage. So ecumenism, the word itself derives from the Greek, as you might expect. Its uh, root is found in Ephesians 2.19, the oikeo, tutheu, the household of God. And again, in Ephesians 4.3, we actually have oikumene, which means the whole inhabited world. So actually, the, the reach of the word is very grand. It doesn't actually say anything particularly about reconciliation or unity among Christians, but this kind of broad household view of, uh, of everyone one who belongs to God. But I would say far more than those um, verses that give us our Greek source word, really the key verse of ecumenism has been John 17, 12, which is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he says, he prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And actually, this is a much better verse for um, being the inspiration and frame for ecumenism as we've seen it, because the connection there between oneness or unity and mission is unmistakable. Ecumenism is actually a result of the worldwide mission movement, which we will get into. But I think that's a much better better way of capturing the, the genius or the inspiration that gave rise to the movement. Dad, why don't you tell us, this has been, I know part of your life for as long as I can remember you. So, so tell me, tell us how you got into ecumenism. Well, it's been a part of my life and it remains so because of the John text, John 17, I have argued is really the seat of the uh, particular doctrine of the Trinity that I am identified with and have advocated and popularized under the motif of the beloved community as the Father and the Son in the Spirit are the primordial uh, beloved community. Uh, So in Christ, this triune God has uh, reached out to the broken and uh, perishing creation uh, to reclaim it uh, for uh, its own eternal life. And so that gives you kind of the, the broad, broad, uh, horizon, theological horizon of the ecumenical movement and ecumenical theology. And moreover, the, uh, the word ecumenism is a kind of, let me just, maybe you'll find this a little bit provocative, but it originated, of course, among Protestants, uh, the ecumenical movement did, and it was a Protestant way of trying to reclaim Catholicity, the word Catholic is Greek, katahole, according to the whole. And so ecumenism, as you've explained the etymology, the household of God or the whole inhabited world, is again this vision of the work of saving work of God and Christ as uh, aimed at the entire creation and its reintegration, according to the great texts in Ephesians and Colossians about the cosmic Christ. Uh, so it was a Protestant way of, of trying to recover a sense of Catholicity. And I know there were more details to that in connections with mission that you'll talk about uh, shortly. Um, so, you know, how did I get into it? It was the question you asked me, right? Yes. Okay. Well, um, you know, I grew up in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and grew up with a very, very... Uh, parochial view of the true visible church of God on earth, which, of course, was the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in a famous essay that C.F.W. Walther wrote, The True Visible Church of God on Earth. Having been raised that way uh, and and then uh, uh, experienced the movement from childhood into adolescence in the urban eastern United States, where in my hometown we had three Catholic churches 
a Dutch Reformed church, and us Slovak Lutherans, my social experience of pluralism, religious pluralism, was right there in front of my face uh, uh, throughout my whole period of growing up. And I increasingly found the parochialness of the Missouri Synod ecclesiology uh, just incompatible with the social reality that I was growing up into in the 1960s. And then, you know, I've mentioned before on the podcast, Sarah, that I was for a time uh, uh, dabbling in the charismatic movement in my youth. And that demonstrated to me a fact that was undeniable, that there were sincere, earnest, genuine Christians in all sorts of other denominations besides our own true visible church of God on earth. And I remember kind of, Sarah, at the peak of this uh, involvement, I got my father, Missouri Synod pastor, to come to the coffee house where a Roman Catholic priest was hanging out with us teenagers. Hmm. And I remember I got my father and the priest to sit down cross-legged on the floor. It was really <laughs> 60s hippie style. And I, I, I provoked them into holding hands together and praying together. No. Immediate yes, expulsion fa- from the ministry. <laughs> <laughs> my father prayed together with a Catholic priest in a charismatic teenage coffee house in suburban, uh, urban New Jersey in probably 1970 or something like that. Well, wonders never cease. (laughs) So that was it, you know, and I want to say something in defense, however, of the Missouri Synod, because later in life I learned that the Missouri Synod originated in the trauma of the Prussian Union of Lutheran and Calvinist churches in the uh, early 19th century. And many of these uh, Lutherans led by C.F.W. Walther uh, immigrated to America to escape the forced unification, state coerced unification of the Calvinist and the Lutheran churches in its territory. Uh, And I have to say, I respect that. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why I don't like Pr- Prussian despotism, which was philosophically defended by Kant and Hegel, uh, and why I think the right of the churches to resistance, uh, to resist state interference and coercion in matters of conscience and faith, is part of the distorted but precious legacy of the Missouri Synod. I say it's precious if Missouri Synod Lutherans could actually understand that history properly instead of uh, preserving it in such a reactionary and anti-ecumenical way. I think that's such a great topic to bring up because uh, as I'll, when I get through my own story of this, the, the question is very much what is unity and how is it achieved? And there are so many different answers to those two questions. And some of them are, are evil and um, treacherous answers. Some of them are faithful and gospel oriented, but just the word unity, which has um, taken on a new urgency in our time, it doesn't mean anything necessarily one way or another. You have to actually dig into the details of what the proposed unity and the means of getting there actually are. And Sarah, just two little historical footnotes to what you just said. It was the pro-Nazi German Christian position that all Protestants in Germany should be united in one single uh, Reich uh, imperial church. You know, all the German territories had their own... uh, Lutheran, Calvinist, and Union churches. And their position was ignore the doctrinal differences, ignore the regional differences, let's unite all German Protestants into one Reichskirche to support the one Fuhrer. Uh, And in Japan, uh, during this time period, something very similar happened. Oh, yes. When the imperial Japanese government forced all the Protestant churches in Japan to unite in a church that, of course, would be controlled by the uh, fascist government. 
Very much so. Yeah, the Lutheran Church, the Japan Evangelical Lutheran Church that I work with here, was part was forced into that merger and then withdrew once that was permissible to do so after the end of the war. So yes, big asterisk next to unity. <laughs> well, Dad, um, I, I'd still like to hear more. Like, um, you know, the this is um, uh, you you talked about your your very youthful self discovering that there are Christians outside the immediate boundaries of of the fold you grew up in. But I mean, this has been a big part of your your scholarly work as well as practical work. I know you have been involved in dialogues of various kinds. So just to take us through that a, a bit more. I think I and I, the reason I really want to emphasize this is because one thing I've learned from a Humanism myself is that it is really person and story based. Uh, you know, I am I am all about doctrine, a huge fan. But to make it intelligible in ecumenism, you really have to see how it personally unfolds in a life story and in interconnections. And I think it's worth taking the time to go through that carefully and lay it out. Yeah, I uh, I have to say my path has been a little bit of a zigzag. It started really in seminary when my history professor, a man named John Grow volunteered to do an independent study with me on the theology of Luther, and he directed me to read the following treatises, Against the Heavenly Prophets, uh, that the words of Christ, This is my body, may forever stand, and Confession Concerning Christ's Supper. These three treatises from the 1520s were like the scales falling from my eyes on how Lutheranism is not uh, responsible for or even uh, correlative with generic Protestantism. And the spectacle at at that time that I was learning about, that in the the United States there were at least 10,000 different Protestant sects. 10,000! More now. Arthur Carl Peepcorn worked on what they called in those days, I think it was called symbolics, which was a comparison of different uh, uh, church doctrines, doctrines of churches. And I think I got that statistic from him that there were 10,000 different Protestant sects with different doctrines. And I was shockingly realized every time Protestants quarrel, they split like an amoeba and form a new church. <laughs> and, and there's no way for Protestants to hang together. And from Peepcorn, I was learning that Lutheran confessionalism, at, at least as he understood it, was a far more uh, ecclesiastically thick and intentional uh, uh, understanding uh, that the dispute with Rome was not a dispute about Catholicity. In fact, it was a dispute about recent Roman innovations that compromised the true Catholicity of the church. And so for a number of years, that was kind of my take on ecumenism, that it was primarily oriented towards healing the breach of the 16th century, towards uh, uh, recovering a relationship with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I know that Peepcorn is famous among his fans for having asserted that the Lutheran Church is older than the Roman Catholic Church because we date to 1530 with the uh, Augsburg Confession. But uh, the Roman Catholic Church in its current form, anyway, as not the uh, the undivided Western Church, but as the Roman Catholic Church dates from the Council of Trent starting in, I guess, the late 1540s. <laughs> the, the truth behind that... Uh, clever turn of phrase by Peepcorn, is that at at Trent, the Roman Catholic uh, communion became one denomination alongside other denominations, even though it claimed to be uh, the super denomination to which all the others should supposedly return. Uh, Even You could go even further to the 19th century with the Marian and Papal dogmas that really tragically uh, consolidated the imperial claim of the Roman Catholic communion to be the church, full stop, which was only slightly qualified by Vatican II. Oh, I think it was more than slightly qualified, but we'll get into that. So anyway, on with your story anyway. Yeah, and then uh, as I had this orientation for a number of years and described myself as an evangelical Catholic, a term that meant that I'm both evangelical in the Lutheran sense of affirming the 
justification doctrine as the hermeneutical key to Christian theology, but also Catholic, because this uh, claim for justification is meant to be in accord with the whole and for the sake of the whole and not for the sake of a separated denominational identity, evangelical Catholic. Further complications along the way were uh, the uh, study of the patristic fathers, especially the Greek fathers. Uh, Alexander Schmemann is a contemporary, he's deceased now, but uh, near contemporary uh, American Orthodox theologian uh, whose writings uh, were beautiful and attractive to me. Uh, and through him, I entered into the study of other contemporary Orthodox theologians. And through that, uh, a, an extended study of the uh, early uh, church fathers, especially the Greeks. And so that kind of broadened my view beyond Roman Catholicism to the Greek patristic legacy. And I would say uh, more recently, uh, uh, I've recovered a certain appreciation for the tradition of Calvin, uh, at least the revised tradition of Calvin that goes by the name of Karl Barth. Uh, and so there's a number of factors here uh, in my ecumenism, which I think is spinning in several different directions simultaneously uh, and not s exclusively oriented one way or the other. Well, and that is a definitely a, in accord with ecumenism itself, which has both multilateral and bilateral dimensions to it. So um, I'll, I'll pick up with my story now. Uh, not surprisingly, growing up in your household, I, I never had the idea that people outside of our denomination were not um, the genuine article. Um, occasionally thought people within our denomination were not the genuine article. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> never had that kind of, of, of narrow um, triumphalism, let's say. But also, I suppose what that also meant is that there was never any kind of cathartic breakthrough to discover like, oh, you're really a Christian too, which I think really fired the early stages of the ecumenical movement um, in a way now that we often joke that ecumenism is the victim of its own success. It's so bloody obvious that we're all Christians that some of the uh, excitement has been drained away from it. Uh, but for myself, I would say, you know, I, I um, be, became a self-conscious uh, partisan or fan or confessionally committed Lutheran as I went through my theological education, um, not unaware of other churches and traditions. Um, you know, I had some some uh, run-ins. I was uh, proselytized by a certain Catholic who shall remain nameless. Um, I went to a Reformed seminary. I had a very good, still have a very good Orthodox friend. You know, so all these things were kind of um, out there. But I have to say, honestly, my overall impression of ecumenism as such is that it was pretty milk toast. Like it was advocated by the kind of people who are just oozing with compassion and the suffocating desire for everybody to be, you know, in the coffee house, joining hands and praying and um, are all about love at the expense <laughs> of truth. And that just never did it for me. So then irony of ironies is I was um, finishing up my PhD in 2008, which listeners may recall was not a good year financially, and uh, academia, which was already not doing great in our field, um, took another big nosedive. The only position that opened up to me was at the Institute for Ecumenical Research in Strasbourg. And I remember Andrew, my husband, and I talking and like, really? Ecumenism? Well, at least we get to live in France. <laughs> that was really what <laughs> motivated me. But what I realized just actually from the moment of my interview at the Institute is that my future colleagues were not milquetoast compromisers, but were serious, committed Lutheran theologians who took seriously Jesus' call to unity and who took seriously the integrity of other traditions and their own theological logic and the importance of of having accurate information about them. And so in that that's the way I became officially 
clearly an ecumenist, and I, you know, had a lot, a lot of learning to do to catch up pretty fast. Um, and during my about eight years at the institute, uh, my primary responsibilities were dialogue with Eastern Orthodox and with Pentecostals. I dabbled in some of the other ones, but those were my two main areas. And um, they were, of course, as you might imagine, completely different sorts of dialogues to work on. But one thing that became really clear, and I think this is a really uh, important practical understanding going into ecumenism, is that traditions and the communities that are formed by them are messy and have blurry edges and have ranges. And they're more like Venn diagrams than hard, perfect spheres of crystal. And so you have the best and the worst of every tradition. So, of course, Dad, like you and I are constantly irritated when all people think when they hear Luther or Lutheranism is, oh, he hated the Jews, gave rise to the Nazis, and justification is this kind of forensic thing where God can't stand the sight of you, but whenever he looks at you, he pretends he's seeing Jesus' face instead, and then he decides you're okay. You know, (laughs) you can find all those things in actual existing historical Lutheranism. I mean, we we as members of this tradition have to take responsibility for them and be aware of them, but it's hardly what we would claim or promote as the best of us. But you have to, in you know, in an ecumenical exchange, you have to be willing to work at every level. So if you're in a dialogue where, say, you are trying to honestly present the whole range, including the worst of yourself, and your partner only presents the idealized or best part of themselves, you know, it's it's not going to get very far, and you know, and vice versa. So I think for me, that was really important to realize that ecumenism is also about the whole entire lived life of a community and not just, um, you know, an anodyne proposition on paper. And then we compare them directly, uh, which doesn't even work because we don't even use the words the same way. (laughs) Well, you know, Sarah, that's really interesting uh, because one of the deepest attractions to me, of the ecumenical movement is precisely the hard work that was executed by the doctrinal dialogues. I didn't mention this earlier, but it was a great learning experience for me to uh, read through and study carefully the seven or eight uh, 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 Lutheran Roman Catholic dialogues uh, that led up to eventually the Joint Declaration on Justification. Uh, These were incredible works of scholarship. And what was so fascinating about them is the method that they used, where, uh, just to talk about Lutheran-Catholic dialogue, where the interlocutors came together with a commitment in faith that we are talking over a historical divide with separated sisters and brothers. So yes, we've had a serious falling out, but we recognize each other nevertheless as sisters and brothers. All right, so how do you heal? Or how do you how do you negotiate that historic divide? And the method was very simple. You try to identify the concern beneath the formulations of your partner uh, that uh, seem to be this doctrinal wall of division between you. So instead of just taking the formula at face value, you ask more richly, contextually, historically, what is animating this formulation? What is the concern here? And can we agree upon what the concerns are in the anathemas that have traditionally divided us? And then, in light of that discovery of what the concern is, you ask yourself the self-critical question, can I reformulate my tradition's teaching in such a way that it acknowledges my erstwhile opponent's concern and overcomes the, uh, the prima facie division between us? And I think that uh, method, which had a, a lot to do with the hermeneutical theology of the 1970s and 80s and, and discoveries of how language works as expressions of communities, as expressions of forms of life and so forth, has been incredibly fruitful. Uh, it's almost a way of, of a method for making peace where there has been war 
and indeed there was war between Protestants and Catholics. Very much so. And uh, Harding Meyer, one of my predecessors at the Institute, was one of the major theorizers who worked towards this. Um, it, we usually call it differentiated consensus or differentiating consensus with the idea that, um, that e as you said, each side has its own patterns of speech and conceptuality. And so by looking at the underlying zaka or thing, material that, uh, that it underlies it, you're able to figure out where, in fact, there is is real convergence that you didn't see, or to actually get some clarity about the genuine nature of divergence, if it exists. And just for another example, like in, in Lutheran Orthodox dialogue, the way the Orthodox use words like justification or synergy, they just don't fall into the same conceptual wor world as as those words do for Lutherans. So there's just no way you can you can use those terms as like, oh, you talk about justification, so do we, we're fine. Or you talk about synergy, well, we reject synergy, so, you know, well, this talk is over. You know, it just, you, you have to dig much deeper than that. Right, you know, just a few more notes on that before we move on. That should make it clear that doctrinal dialogue in the ecumenical classical ecumenical movement after the Second Vatican Council is nothing but doctrinal indifferentism. It takes doctrine very seriously, but it realizes that no one's doctrine is fixed in stone as if it is now an immutable uh, uh, formulation uh, that cannot be improved. It's a kind of a penitent realization that orthodoxy, uh, correct teaching, is still the Spirit's work in progress. And so in order for separated sisters and brothers to work together in doctrinal theology, uh, they have to be deeply concerned with doctrinal formulations so that they don't cause unnecessary offense, so that they do articulate an underlying Christian unity and so that they maintain each tradition's concern for Christian truth. That's not doctrinal indifferentism at all, but it does require charitable interpretation where you uh, receive your opponent's, uh, erstwhile opponent's formulation in good faith as seriously intending to say something that is Christianly important. And it also uh, recognizes that it's not easy to achieve disagreement. This is one of those paradoxical formulations that I love. It's not easy to achieve disagreement because usually disagreements are just picking up whatever handy piece of ammunition is available and hurling it at the foe in order to decimate them. Uh, but actually to reason together down to the bottom of how we actually disagree is an arduous task and not easily accomplished. It's a work of love. Yes, I want to endorse that heartily. And with the, the further reflections that, first of all, the so-called doctrine set in stone almost certainly got set in stone in historical reaction to one another. So the idea that we could have have sealed off doctrine that isn't actually part of the ongoing historical experience of the other church is simply false. But what that also means is that along the way, movements in reaction to each other pick up a lot of junk along the way, along uh, in addition to the jewels they're holding too tightly. And one of the practical aspects of having hostile communities is that you are um, under-incentivized to look carefully at the junk that's mixed in with your jewels and get rid of it because all of it is stuff that the other guy has rejected and therefore all of it is precious. And therefore the kind of ongoing... I don't know, like self-cleaning task of Christian doctrine is to be able to look and say, what have we been hanging on to that, you know, we can see why it came about, but it doesn't actually serve our interests well. I think Bart's rejection of Calvin's doctrine of double predestination is the, you know, the, the paradigmatic case of this, saying that um, just because it arose in this situation that it does, it did... Uh, and for the reasons it did, does not mean we need to hang on to it anymore. We can let it go and do better than this. Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, just another pedagogical example. I used to do this little exercise teaching students 
I would not tell them what I was quoting. I would open up and I'd say, this is a document from the 16th century. And I would read out to them the first four or five theses of the Council of Trent's article on justification, which are all about salvation by grace. And I would read them without telling the students who, was, who wrote this. And then I would take a poll. How many would, of you would say that this is good Protestant doctrine, salvation <laughs> by grace alone? And they would all raise their hands. And then I would get my knowing smirk on the face and said, no, you're all good. Uh, uh, Tridentine Catholics. <laughs> Tridentine Catholics, exactly. And that's, I mean, that's just an example of how stupid polemical theology, how what stupid positions polemical theology can get you in. Uh, and when you try to repeat the polemics of the past, you're probably missing the needed polemics of today. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it has often struck me how extremely um, medieval Catholic, much contemporary American evangelical theology is, but without the sacraments and without a pope to set them straight. And, you know, that, that doesn't seem like a good trade-off, honestly. <laughs> Certain kinds of American evangelicalism are theologies of the good deal rather than of the good news. Is that what you're saying? The good deal in response to the good deeds, yes. Yes. Right, right very much so. I'll do you the favor, Lord, of believing in you if you do me the favor of taking me to heaven when I die. Well, at least medieval Catholics had to work a little bit harder for their good deal. But um, anyway. Yes, my, my be beloved teacher, Robert Bertram, who was on the Lutheran Catholic Dialogue, made exactly that incisive remark that at least the medieval Catholics thought you had to work to get into heaven, unlike the cheap grace Protestants of today. All right. Well, without getting too far afield, I just wanted to make one more comment to wrap up this aspect of our conversation, which is that, um, as you mentioned, there is each tradition's habits of conceptuality and language that need to be examined for their underlying meaning and compared. But this gives rise to a real practical problem, which is that what language and conceptuality do you then use in order to articulate the new understanding you've reached together? And almost inevitably, you're going to have to recycle words because all these words come out of scripture and theological tradition and all of their, you know, Latin or Greek roots. There's only so far you can go entirely inventing new language that is isn't just incomprehensible jargon, which means that in recycling these traditional words on both sides into an ecumenical document, you run the risk of yet again confusing your home constituency by your choice of words. And so this is the my, my big plea, especially to um, doubters out there about the whole ecumenical undertaking who, for example, have picked up the joint declaration and been horrified because it does not talk about justification in precisely the way a Lutheran would talk about justification. The reason for that is because the Joint Declaration is an ecumenical document, not a confessional document, and definitely not a Lutheran confessional document. I think it is completely legitimate and appropriate for Lutherans to maintain their confessional language when they are talking within and about their own tradition. But something has to give when you actually attempt this bridge-building exercise of ecumenical language. So it's really important to come to that saying, okay, how actually is the language and conceptuality being used here? And why is it being used in this particular way? And again, dig into the, the matter, also realizing that in any attempt to bridge a divide between two communities that have been estranged for so long, of course, there's not going to be perfect accord. Of course, one is not going to lay down at the feet of the other and say, oh, we were wrong, you were right. <laughs> That's not what you're going to find there, and it wouldn't do any good if it did. So it's really important to recognize the genre of an ecumenical document is what I'm saying. You know, let me be, uh, let me uh, again respond to that and more uh, specifically, your earlier comment about Barthes overcoming the uh, uh, reform doctrine of double predestination, uh, and try to apply it uh, to, to the to the Lutheran tradition uh, of theology, um, because so many who objected to the Joint Declaration objected that it somehow compromised the 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 genuine heart of Lutheran theology, which is the purely forensic, extrinsic doctrine of attributed righteousness. 
maybe I should unpack that a minute before I go on. Probably. Uh, out Out of early Lutheran conflicts arose the opinion, which was kind of solidified in the formula of Concord in 1580, that in justification, uh, what happens is that the Heavenly Father, upon hearing the sinner's uh, 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 despair and a- appeal uh, for divine mercy, then from heaven attributes to that uh, penitent sinner the alien righteousness of Christ and, and thus can see the sinner now clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and in that sense now justified, made right uh, in the eyes of God. So you see it's an entirely extrinsic affair, the righteousness of Christ, uh, which is not the sinner's, but Christ's, is attributed to the desperate sinner upon the cry for mercy. Uh, And then, and only then, and only on that basis does God then send the Holy Spirit to renew that person. That's the has been claimed to be the Lutheran doctrine of justification. How do you repent without the Holy Spirit first coming to you? Well, I'm coming right to that, Sarah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the whole it, this is such a jury-rigged doctrine uh, <laughs> that was invented out of polemical uh, necessities in the 50 years between the Augsburg Confession and the 1580 Formula of Concord. And what the joint declaration requires Lutherans to do is examine the incoherencies of their own traditional view. And this cuts really deep, because when you look at the Augsburg Confession, it does not hesitate to speak about the new obedience as immediately following from the justification by faith, not by grace, but by faith, because faith not only believes in the righteousness of Christ, but believes that that righteousness applies to me, the sinner. It is the it is faith which mediates the new righteousness for the Augsburg Confession. And therefore, in the apology of the Augsburg Confession, Melanchthon can also say that faith is regeneration, just as you implied. How can the desperate sinner even know or desire or dare to plead for mercy apart from the uh, gracious work of the Holy Spirit uh, informing of Christ and pointing to Christ and encouraging and empowering in Christ that cry for mercy. And so you see in the early uh, Melanchthon and the early Luther and in early Lutheranism, there was not this false antithesis between effective justification or effective righteousness and forensic justification or alien righteousness. It was a package deal, an inseparable work of Christ and the Spirit. And even, and even so, Luther and Melanchthon understood it was not the results that God was crediting to your account. They could hold this doctrine and still insist that it was entirely the gift of God's mercy and not because he was like, you know, making a down payment on the better person you would eventually become and then really for real grant you righteousness. Like they could do that. And especially if then you thought that it's up to me to prove myself worthy of grace, which is to totally misunderstand the import of the Spirit as the one who grants a penitent faith. Uh, and so that progress in, in, in the holy life of the, the new life of the Christian is always the work of the Spirit's grace and never the autonomous work of the believer showing that he or she is worthy of grace. So I think that that shows you how the ecumenical movement can force uh, partisans on either side of the polemical divides to re-examine their own traditions and to come to terms with the incoherencies within their own tradition that were created by polemical overstatement. 
Yeah. You know, another great example of that is the uh, Lutheran Mennonite reconciliation in 2010, which was a not changing anyone's mind about whether or not you can rightly inf- uh, baptize infants. But what it did do is force Lutherans to reckon with a fact that we had forgotten, which was our role in the persecution of Anabaptists. And, you know, in the light of the past 500 years, we have um, taken a very different attitude towards religious liberty and its absolute importance. And we were able to look into our tradition and say, okay, well, you know, Luther started out really strong on religious liberty and then he got panicked and the princes got involved and he turned and Melanchthon too. And they said the the sword should execute heretics. But we also discovered Johannes Brentz, the Swabian reformer, took a very different attitude and he said, yeah, follow that line and soon the hangman will be the most articulate doctor of scripture. And that's not anywhere you want to (laughs) go. So, I mean, that was another case where uh, a longstanding division gave rise to an opportunity for a reexamination of the past and an ability to say, you know, we were we were completely wrong about persecuting religious others. And we're leaving that one behind for good. And thank you for bringing it to our attention. Yeah. So this you see the ecumenical convergence statements are really I think this is something, Sarah, that you've emphasized to me are still awaiting their reception. And their reception is going to involve some of this painful self-examination, no? Yes. Well, I think that that is a word worth defining. Reception is one of the later evolved um, ecumenical concepts, which is that it's one thing for a dialogue team of scholars to do the heavy lifting and come to a conclusion. But I think anyone who served on a dialogue team, especially one that works well, knows that you grow in such affection towards one another. And probably if you're on the dialogue, you're already somewhat disposed to the other tradition in a friendly way that your conviction of convergence could possibly be undermined by your personal relationships and especially in your ability to communicate it to the outside world. In any events, you know, and scholars can also simply be wrong, let me dare to say. So the important next step is not just letting something rest at a level of a statement or even one as binding as the Joint Declaration. I mean, it's the only time the Roman Catholic Church has ever committed itself to a doctrinal statement with a Protestant uh, body, ecclesial body. Um, but that it actually has to then uh, dissipate out, not dissipate, disseminate out into the into the congregational and regional life of the church so that people, you know, for one thing, find out about it and then have chances to encounter each other on the grassroots level. And, you know, I, there are some real practical problems with that. First of all, not every church exists in every place. So, you know, um, if you're uh, uh, in in Ethiopia, it's like the one place where large numbers of Lutherans and Oriental Orthodox occupy the same physical space. But there's hardly any other place on the planet where that happens, you know. Yeah. And uh, even in your own town, you know, well, there might be a Catholic and a Lutheran and a Reformed and a Methodist, etc. church, but might not be. And then there's a limited amount of time for congregations who are often just barely surviving uh, on their own. But I think the principle is basically sound, which is rejecting a a purely um, top-down approach and upholding the grassroots approach, which is very much where ecumenism came from. Uh, But also, I think this is really wise because some ecumenical documents that claim convergence seem now very much a product of their time. I I have to say, Baptism, Eucharist, and Ministry and the Lima Liturgy that came out of it, like there's this kind of... um, gleeful mainline Protestant assertion that we've solved all the problems. And, um, (laughs) you know, and there are some gestures in the direction of both Catholics and like Baptist evangelical types. But basically, you kind of get the the subtext of problem solved. And uh, Baptism Eucharist ministry does not solve a whole lot of problems for me. So, you know, for what it was at the time, I mean, there's nothing wrong with various mainstream Protestants, you know, getting along better than they did before, but it's it's not a finished product either. So I think that's another reason why reception is really important. I got to tell you an anecdote about baptism, Eucharist, and ministry. You know, the main author of that was a Lutheran, William Lazarus. Oh, him. <laughs> Bill Lazarus really engineered that. And uh, that was the pre-ELCA, prior to the ELCA's formation, this uh, 
grandiose vision that the Lutherans were in the position of capturing mainline American Protestantism and orienting, reuniting the whole thing under Lutheran leadership and tilting the whole thing towards reconciliation with Rome. That was very much Bill Lazarus' agenda in baptism, Eucharist, and ministry. That period of time, prior to the formation of the ELCA, that I remember the, the palpable excitement, that vision of how history was about to unfold, grab people. That was the, the, much of the enthusiasm about forming the ELCA out of the LCA, the ALC, and the AELC. Much of that enthusiasm was born by this BEM path to the future. So it's ecumenical dispensationalism. <laughs> We're going to unite the Lutherans, and the Lutherans are going to unite the remnants of mainline Protestantism, and then we're going to get Rome in cahoots with us. <laughs> well, no wonder it gives me the willies. That explains a lot. Gosh. <laughs> at the time, it was plausible. I have, uh, I have to say, at the time, it seemed plausible. No one could have predicted how the ELCA would have been co-opted by other forces. Well, you also see, going back to the 60s, when famously Franklin Clark Fry, the president of the ULCA, was on the cover of Time, you know, Mr. Lutheran, right. there was like this 25-year period where it seemed like Lutherans were rising, probably because we were all moving out to the suburbs and having lots of babies. And, you know, it seemed like we were going to capture and overcome the Calvinist Methodist revivalist, you know, uh, polarity that had racked American Protestants and But, you know, that also tracks really closely with changing business models of corporate consolidation and this real belief that unity meant centralization and control with all of your outposts basically being franchises. And to me, like, <laughs> if that's what ecumenism was, I would never use the word ecumenist to describe myself. I think that's horrifying in every way. But there was a real period where it seemed like that was... That that was the way to go. And I think the fact that not just um, <laughs> Lutheranism, but everything since that kind of high point in the 80s has tended towards fracturing and polarization suggests to me at least that the drive to centralization in the first place was always a false god. And we're, we're getting the inevitable fallout from that failure. Yeah, the institutional decline of the mainline denominations, along with the National Council of Churches, I think is prima facie evidence for what you're saying there, Sarah. But but all the churches are bleeding. It's not just the mainline, only perhaps most rapidly, but they're, the bleed out of Catholicism and and a more conservative Protestantism is rapid as well. Anyway, well, that, that got a little grim there. <laughs> Well, actually, so I think because we're about at the time we need to start wrapping up, I did actually want to just give an overview of the whole history of ecumenism. Again, because as listeners have figured out by now, I don't think there are any truthful propositions apart from the history, history in which they're embedded. And knowing the history makes a big difference to interpreting the statements or doctrines that come out of them. And ecumenism itself has a really interesting history, which I think could also help overcome its perception of being over or milquetoast or ver compromise or the various other things. So uh, if that's okay with you, Dad, I'm just going to run through this, but feel free to interject with comments along the way. Far away. So I think the first interesting prehistory of this is that in the 19th century, most Protestant bodies began to form worldwide confessional fellowships. In fact, Lutherans are basically dead last to do that in 1947 with the formation of the LWF. There was a, a prehistory in the Lutheran World Convention starting in the early 1920s, but even that is way later than everyone else. I think it's because Lutherans have always been super paranoid about super church international structures. Um, but what this meant is that, first of all, various Protestants were figuring out that they were the same confessional tradition in different countries and with different languages and therefore different on the ground practices. So I think that was kind of a good run up. Then by um, the time of the famous Edinburgh Missionary Council in 1910, all of the these Protestant and Anglican, I'm not sure actually if any Lutherans were there. If so, they were a negligible number, got together 
And one of the things that was addressed was the problem of outright competition on the mission field, where basically um, indigenous peoples were saying, um, you all claim to be disciples of this Jesus who said you're supposed to love one another, but you clearly don't love one another. So no thanks. <laughs> and the the palpable hatred uh, between the confessions was undermining the missionary task, hence uh, John 17, 12 being so important to the, to the um, ecumenical movement. So, of course, that was 19. 1910. We all know what happened four years later and dragged on for four years after that. But in the 1920s, there was this huge regrouping, especially in response to the refugee crisis after World War One. And um, they, they, what we saw then was the beginning really of the multilateral movement, as it's called, which means multiple sides all at once engaging with one another. So you had the formation of the faith and order movement, which was really about doctrine and the structure of the ministry. And then the life and work movement, which was more about uh, social and political engagement. I think Bonhoeffer was quite active in that one. Um, there is also an ongoing missionary council. And I think to everyone's enormous surprise in 1920, the um, ecumenical patriarchates uh, released this um, public letter to the churches of Christ everywhere endorsing ecumenism. Um, I wish certain Orthodox churches today would remember this, that they were an early start <laughs> in the movement. Um, but uh, the conspicuously absent partner here is the Roman church. In 1928, there was an encyclical released by the Pope called Mortalium Animos, which basically said, um, no ecumenism, the only solution to church disunity is home to Rome. And so Catholicism basically stayed out. But for the first, you know, 50 years or so, from 1910 to the 1960s, you have a very strong group of Protestants, um, Anglicans and Lutherans, to the extent they are or are not Protestants, and Orthodox all getting involved, having these multilateral conversations, again, rather interrupted by events in Europe in the 1940s, um, even starting in the 1930s. But then in the wake of another refugee crisis, we finally get the formation of the World Council of Churches in 1948. Um, I'm sure there are many cult cultured despisers of the WCC, and there might be reasons for that, but its initial promise, I think, was strong and it was the right move to make at the time. It started with a very bare bones confession of Jesus as savior, but before long, it actually articulated a full Trinitarian um, theology based on scripture. And some of the speeches given at its early conventions are really tremendous. I mean, they're, they're really deeply worthwhile. I think we see a certain kind of um, captivity to a kind of political orientation later on that I personally would consider regrettable. But in its early days, it was an important thing. So, Dad, I bet you can pick up the historical story starting with Vatican II. So why don't you run us through the, the next phase? Vatican II was, you know, quite quite an event. I remember even as a adolescent in the um, early 1960s, seeing reports in the newspaper about it and asking my father about it and so forth. Vatican II uh, was a, an assembly of the Catholic church leadership that I think it went on for four years, didn't it? Yeah, 62 to 65. Right, and it issued a number of documents, the documents of the Second Vatican Council. And when I was a seminary student in the 70s, that was required reading. We actually read the, at least in one course I took, we read the documents of the Second Vatican Council. And that included Unitatis Red Integratio, in which the Vatican, uh, the Catholic Church committed itself to the ecumenical movement and acknowledged. Now, this was what you disputed earlier when I said the, the Catholic Church slightly lifted, opened, opened up the circle when it said that there are, how do they put that, separated? They separated brethren. But they called them ecclesial communities that the Spirit has not refrained from using for salvation. And then they differentiate between them. And they grant orthodoxy full and total status as a church. And then kind of it's a, a, a platonic hierarchy of ranking downward from there. 
<laughs> but but it did right. what but the important thing it did there was make the observation all these churches are so different we can't just issue a blanket judgment on all of them we actually need to talk to each one individually and figure out what they're about and then we can proceed from there and i think that was exactly the insight that was so needed in order to take the next step from multilateral dialogue into bilateral dialogue yes i think you're right about that sarah the the point I was struggling to articulate a moment ago, though, was that here the Catholic Church affirmed that the true Church of Christ is in the Catholic... Ah, subsists. Subsists is the subsists, word. Subsists. Subsists right. within the Catholic Church, which is a different statement than saying the true body of Christ is the Catholic Church. Right. So this subtle distinction created the room for recognizing the separated uh, sisters and brothers as ecclesial communities. Right, right. Yeah, that is an important clarification. You know, it's, since then, there's been a great deal of reaction against the Second Vatican Council. The Catholic Church has been racked by controversy, internal controversy, back and forth about Vatican II and its right, correct interpretation and its implications and so forth and so on. You had popes like John Paul II and then Benedict following him, who seemed in many ways to be putting the brakes on uh, kind of uh, readings of Vatican II that would have transformed the Catholic Church into a big liberal Protestant denomination. Fair enough. Uh, on the other hand, you had uh, the present Pope Francis who seems to be opening the windows back up again for some more fresh air. So there's been a, a back and forth, uh, forth, a tug of war going on within Catholicism about the proper reading of Vatican II. I think also it's worth noting in this regard that one of the, I think, unforeseen effects of Vatican II is that it made it possible to become a Catholic theologian who was not a celibate priest. You could be a layperson and a theologian. And I think it inadvertently bifurcated the stream of Catholic theological talents into, let's say, the somewhat more liberal-minded ones who became theologians and husbands and fathers, and then those who became priests who tended... I mean, almost inevitably to be more conservative. So I think there's this huge growing split between uh -huh. an increasingly conservative priesthood and a theological body as well as populace that um, maybe are not quite on board with, you know, obviously some are, but um, with some of the more radical conservatism or anti-Vatican II or very 19th century oriented readings of, of Catholicism. You know, that... I have to confess, and this goes across a range of concerns, that for all my interest in Lutheran-Catholic reconciliation, the actual reality of the Catholic Church remains to me a riddle wrapped inside of an enigma encased <laughs> in a mystery. I just, I just don't get it. I, I just don't get it. But that's my limitation, and uh, also perhaps a frank admission of how far we've got to go on the ecumenical journey. Yeah, I think that's really true. There are no solutions that deprive people of their history and tradition that are going to end up good. So, you know, this the reconciliation between Lutherans and Catholics is not fixed by all of us climbing up on a roof and kicking the ladder away. You know, it's, it's just not right. going to lead to anything good. And, you know, that, that obtains even within a confessional tradition. One of the most horrifying realizations I made as an ecumenist is that mergers beget more net denominations than were there to begin with. It just doesn't work. <laughs> And like we see in attempts at merging Lutheranism in North America, but like all sorts of united and uniting churches, they either die rapidly, they t well, they tend to do that anyway, or, and they end up producing new churches that react against them. So, you know, that, that kind of solution obviously is somehow deeply, deeply false to the project of unity, uh, or, or maybe even unity is not the right word. The oneness that Jesus prayed for is not achieved in this way. Now, there probably needs to be some institutional expression of unity simply because human beings don't do anything without institutions. But the, the problems there we know are simply endemic. So um, 
Well, so I guess the question now is, where do we go from here? Uh, we've had, I guess I should follow up, we've had 50 years of really fantastic bilateral dialogues. Uh, the Lutheran Catholic one was, in fact, the first, but lots have followed in every direction since then. But by this point, nearly all of them have run their course. There isn't much left to say. What remains is decisions and uh, on the level of the hierarchy and reception on the level of the laity and congregations and pastors. So that that still is plenty of work to be done. I would say the, the one um, most hopeful sign to me, and of course I'm a little biased because I'm involved in it, but in the past 20 years or so, you have seen finally skeptical, evangelical, and Pentecostal Christians take notice of the let's say, the search for unity rather than institutional ecumenism and begin to participate in a way that they really haven't before. And that has gone hand in hand with a deeper appreciation by evangelicals and Pentecostals of the whole tradition of the church, the whole theological deposit, and doing some serious intellectual growing up themselves in terms of articulating um, in a theological way the core experiences that gave rise to their movements. Like, for instance, for Pentecostals, this experience of baptism in the spirit or the, or the whole gospel, the four square gospel, all that kind of stuff is, is being taken up, reassessed and integrated into the larger Christian tradition. I think that's where we're going to see a lot of the future energy coming from. Well, that would be very encouraging if the uh, most fissiparious elements of Protestantism could recognize the need for reintegration with the whole. Uh, and that would also be invigorating for the dispirited um, remnants of mainline Protestantism, to have that infusion of energy coming from that direction. It would also, of course, mean that some of the more fundamentalist and reactionary modes of religion associated with evangelicalism and Pentecostalism would be have to be shed in the process, don't you think? Oh, yes. But, you know, that only happens through reaching out the right hand of fellowship and encouraging people to study and assuring them they will not lose their faith in the process or whatever faith they lose wasn't good faith to begin with. But on the flip side, I would say it also forces, as it did for me, a recognition that the charismatic movement anyway is not confined within walls at all. Pentecostalism itself first thought it was an ecumenical movement. It's an anachronistic term. But the first Pentecostals, as we call them now, thought what they were doing was reuniting broken Christendom by a common experience of the spirits. And now, uh, you know, more than 100 years later, what we also see, as I found, is that there are places in which there is no meaningful difference between Lutheran and charismatic, like in our East African churches. And more than 10% of the Catholic Church is self-identified as charismatic now. So again, it it does a nice job of blurring these fixed boundaries and seeing ways in which we co-inhere in each other already. That's really interesting, Sarah. Uh, Some time ago, I read a statistic that really struck me that the most inclusive denomination in the United States in terms of uh, racial uh, inclusiveness and also in terms of ministry, gender in terms of ministry in uh, in relationship to gender is the Assemblies of God. No, I thought it was the Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> well, yeah, all right, but it would be two denominations proving the same point, I think. You know, that uh, our denomination, the ELCA, has for over 30 years uh, used a quota system to try to shoehorn in racial and, and gender inclusiveness. Uh, and when it comes to people of color or whose languages primary languages other than English, it's been an abysmal failure. The only way it's worked is within the dominant constituency descended from Scandinavians and Germans, where uh, uh, gender inclusiveness has been more successfully achieved. So what's your point, that it's the Holy Spirit and the genuine preaching of the gospel that achieves true transracial unity and not liberal Protestant sociological bullying to get people to say and do the right things? Your words, not mine. (laughs) Well, ending on that uh, slightly controversial note, let me just say, if you would like to support ecumenism, the best way to do it is with catechism. There is no ecumenical unity among churches and people who have no idea what they believe or why they believe it. So pastors, 
Break out those catechisms, large and small, teach them to your people, and then use that as the springboard for talking to all different kinds of Christians. That's when the really interesting ecumenical discoveries will start to take place. You know, when you think about it, Luther's small catechism is one of his least polemical uh, documents. The large, too, is remarkably unpolemical. Right, yeah. But I would say what you use in the congregation is primarily the small catechism, though I'm, I'm all for adults studying the large catechism. But it's not polemical. It's a pastoral, pedagogical uh, inculcation of basic Christian beliefs and their, uh, in, in intelligible ways, their rationale. And when you take that approach, then it becomes meaningful to say, in respect to every part of the catechism, what's at stake here? What difference does this make? Why does this matter? What would alternatives to it be? And as soon as you do that, you get into the ecumenical dialogue. There you go. All right, you've heard it, folks. Go forth and do likewise. Next time on the show, we will be talking about the book of Nehemiah. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.